Good morning. This morning's um, Bible reading comes from Hosea chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. Um, If you'd like to follow in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 738, or it should be on the screen behind me. Hosea chapter 10. Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. As his fruit increased, he built more altars. As his land prospered, he adorned his sacred stones. Their heart is deceitful, and now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will demolish their altars and destroy their sacred stones. Then they will say, we have no king because we did not revere the Lord. But even if we had a king, what could he do for us? They make many promises, take false oaths and make agreements. Therefore, lawsuits spring up like poisonous weeds in a ploughed field. The people who live in Samaria fear for the calf idol of Beth-Avon. Its people will mourn over it, and so will its idolatrous priests, those who have rejoiced over its splendour, because it is taken from them into exile. It will be carried to Assyria as tribute for the great king. Ephraim will be disgraced. Israel will be ashamed of its foreign alliances. Samaria's king will be destroyed, swept away like a twig on the surface of the waters. The high places of wickedness will be destroyed. It is the sin of Israel. Thorns and thistles will grow up and cover their altars. Then they will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Since the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, Israel, and there you have remained. Will not war again overtake the evildoers in Gibeah? When I please, I will punish them. Nations will be gathered against them to put them in bonds for their double sin. Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh, so I will put a yoke on her fair neck. I will drive Ephraim, Judah must plough, and Jacob must break up the ground. Sow righteousness for yourselves, reap the fruit of unfailing love, and break up your unploughed ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you, on you. Good morning, and uh, hopefully I'm on. Uh, yes, we will uh, seek to get the computers up and the screens coming up uh, for you soon. Uh, let me pray that God would speak to us from his word. And we are covering chapters 8 to 10, and we'll sort of flow through some of the key themes in those chapters this morning. God, uh, we thank you that you're a God who speaks. Uh, you speak words of correction, words of rebuke, but also words of encouragement and a call to repentance and faith. And we pray that uh, we would hear your word, that we, unlike the people of God in Hosea's day, would truly repent, would truly make you Lord and Saviour, and that we would live uh, in light of that truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, one of the greatest dangers in the Christian life is self-reliance, self-reliance. You know, in the Western church and in a place like here at Nawi, we we think we have the gifts, we have the talents, we have the money, we have the charisma, the wisdom, the degrees, the leadership gifts, the influence and the vision. And sometimes churches and Christians think that we control our own destiny, we control our own success. We can run the church, been doing it for a long time, what could go wrong, we think. Now, although we would never put it this way, 
sometimes we think this, how happy God should be that we are on his side. Look at all, look at us, I'm looking at you, brilliant, articulate, smart, with degrees, raising your children. There's a temptation to think, we can do this. And the sign that we often think like that, although we would never say it, is we don't pray very much and uh, we don't call upon God and we don't say, God, it's all you and we are dependent upon you. See, our brothers and sisters in the majority world, who are far less than us, are more likely, I think, to rely on God, to trust his word, to call out in prayer. When you don't have the money, when you don't have the influence, when you don't have the food, what do you do? Give us today our daily bread. I haven't prayed for my daily bread for a long time because the salary comes in every two weeks and there's normally money there, right? The self-reliance of Christians, especially in the West, is a dangerous thing. In Hosea's day, Israel had forgotten their maker, chapter 8, verse 14. They don't listen to their maker. They have moved on, as we have seen the last few weeks, from their maker. They have forgotten their maker. They have a form of religion, but in fact, they worship other gods. And in chapter 8, I'm going to start in chapter 8 and spend most of the time there, we see the dangerous self-reliance. They uh, have self-appointed kings. They have man-made calves. They have expensive allies. They have their own corrupted vision of religion, and they have impressive fortresses. Yet with all of that, God is not happy. God is not pleased with them. Discipline is coming for this unfaithful nation in the 8th century BC. And he uses this expression, chapter 8, sowing the wind, reaping the whirlwind. Judgment is coming, he says, and he says, put the trumpet to your lips, an eagle is over the house of the Lord. In other words, sound the alarm. When you blow the trumpet, you, you sound the alarm that the enemies are coming. So it says, sound it off now. An eagle is over the house of the Lord. The eagle or the vulture is Assyria. Assyria is coming. The judgment of God is going to come upon a nation through the nation of Assyria. But why is it coming? <clears throat> Let me mention a, a whole bunch of stuff that comes out in chapter 8. Firstly, they have broken the covenant because the people have broken my covenant and rebelled against my law. Israel cries out to me, our God, we acknowledge you. What do you mean? But Israel has rejected what is good. An enemy will pursue him. It's interesting. God says, you break my covenant. And they say, no, no, but God, we love you. We gather in your religious festivals. Oh God, what do you mean we uh, have broken your covenant? They don't worship God, it's a lie. They worship other gods. They worship the Baals, they worship the Asherahs. They live ungodly lives. Their lives tell a different story. They are, in fact, sinners and rebels, and you can't fool God, he says. And friends, uh, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes a similar thing in Galatians 6, 7 to 8. He says, do not be deceived. Addressed specifically now to Christians, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And as we hear these hard words to the nation of Israel in the 8th century BC, we then need to self-examine ourselves, and that'll be key theme today, to self-examine ourselves. Because, friends, let me say something very clearly. God knows the public sins, but God also knows the hidden sins. Nothing escapes 
his glare and his vision. God knows who you are, how you live, what you do. And you can't mock God. You can't make fun of him. You can't pretend he doesn't know. God knows. And see, Israel thought, well, you know, God, we acknowledge you. No, they don't. Secondly, they've set up kings without God's approval. They set up kings without my consent. They choose, choose princes without my approval. So for a certain period of Israel's history between 2 Kings 14 and 17, there was like they take out one king and there's a revolt and they put another king in place without any reference to God. And this is what it's saying. You're killing one another. You're putting kings in place and you don't have my authority. Hubbard, one commentator, says, the monarchy was sustained only by cruel ambition and changed only by violent treachery. God was not consulted. The words of Frank Sinatra, they did it their way, and they will suffer the consequences. Thirdly, they set up idols, calf idols. I love this. With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. Samaria, this is the capital of the north, throw out your calf idol. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of purity? They are from Israel. This calf... I love this. A metal worker has made it. It's not God. And you realize, what are you doing bowing down to that calf? A metal worker has made it. It will be broken in pieces, that calf of Samaria. See, the golden calf, a young bull, was a man-made God. First made it appearance at the foot of Mount Sinai, remember? Moses is up on the mountain and, and Aaron, the priest, gives in and they make a calf idol. Later, uh, after Solomon, Jeroboam I, he set up two calf or golden calves, one at Bethel and one at Dan, and so that it, they were rallying points for the worship of the people in the north, so they didn't go to Jerusalem. He said, well, we don't want them going to Jerusalem because they're our enemies in the south. Let's set up some, our own gods so that the people can stay here, which leads to idolatry. A metal worker has made it. It is not God, and God will destroy it. But there's something about the bull, isn't there? An obvious symbol of brute strength and sexual potency. They had bought into the pagan thinking of the day. We set up these calves. But I think, are we any different? A corrupt society like ours tends to idolize the same things. Strength and sexual potency. Just check out our society's obsession with strong, toned bodies with sexualized images. Sexual desires are promoted and celebrated on Instagram, by influencers, by footballers, by, on Facebook, on pornographic sites. Our society says to us, that's where you will find your ultimate satisfaction. And God says, they are idols. I will break them down. And then they set up ungodly alliances. But you see, Israel was in terrible uh, need and Assyria was the world power. So Israel then started to pay money or give tribute to Assyria so, to keep the peace. It says, they sow the wind, they reap the whirlwind, they, the stalk has no head, it will produce no flower, were it to yield grain, foreigners would swallow it up. Firstly, you reap what you sow. That's what it means. Sow the wind, reap the whirlwind. You reap what you sow. You sow the wind of idolatry, foolish, ungodly behavior, you reap the whirlwind of Assyria. The storm is coming, he says. 
And because they formed an alliance with Assyria, they think it will keep them safe. They trusted in Assyria rather than trusting in God. And he says, Israel is swallowed up. Now she is among the nations like something no one wants. For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has sold herself to lovers. Although they have sold themselves among the nations, I will now gather them together. They'll begin to waste away under the oppression of the mighty king. Like a wild donkey wandering alone. It's a pathetic symbol, isn't it? You're out in the desert and there's one alone. He's just traveling. She, someone, she has sold herself to lovers. Uh, Israel, you didn't trust me, so you're paying money to a, a pagan nation to look after you. The protection will do you no good. Judgment is coming. And you have uh, trusted also in fertility cult of Baals, but the stork will ha has no head, it will produce no flower. Uh, your pagan gods are not going to feed you. The Assyrian army stripped the land where it to yield grain, foreigners were swallowed up. And then they engage in religious practices without obedience, verses 11 to 13. Though Ephraim built many altars for sin offerings, they become altars for sinning. They set them up so they can worship at their, their places of sinning. I wrote for them the many things of my law, but they regarded them as something foreign. Though they offer sacrifices as gifts to me, and though they eat the meat, the Lord is not pleased with them. Now he will remember their wickedness and punish their sins. They will return to Egypt. Performance, friends, is not enough, never enough in religious worship. They don't listen to God. They don't do what he says. And Derek Kidney in his commentary uh, uh, writes this about the holiday of worship. Just take a moment to listen into what he has to say and examine yourself. It seems to be an occupational disease of worshippers to think more of the mechanics than the meaning of what we do. More of getting it right than of getting ourselves right. This can degenerate from thoughtlessness into something worse, ranging from cynical detachment, if we are sophisticated, to religious superstition, if we are not. What the prophets show us is heaven's strong reaction to such attitudes, that this parody of worship is not simply valueless, as we might have guessed, but insulting and even sickening to God, attracting the very judgment it is supposed to avert. The prophets Amos, Isaiah, Micah, and the Old Testament speak strongly on, on this theme. If you say you love God, you need to love him with your heart, not simply with your performance. And friends, in uh, Revelation 3, 16 to 17, there is a uh, very sobering words to the church at Laodicea. In one sense, we're playing with God. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor, or cold nor hot. I, sh I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, I do not need a thing. A little bit like Israel in Isaiah's time, we've got everything. God, we worship, we're, we're doing well as a nation but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And then they trusted in their own accomplishments. They were self-reliant, is where I began the sermon this morning. Israel has forgotten their maker and built palaces. Judah has fortified cities for protection, but I will send fire on their cities 
that will consume their fortresses. Beautiful buildings. We look good. We feel safe. We feel successful. As if we are right, secure, reliant. He says, your fine buildings will not save you, God says. Your fortified cities in the south will not save Judah either. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. They did you no good. God says, they won't save you. God is the saviour. And they have forgotten their maker. Israel has forgotten their maker. They did not listen to God. It was time for discipline to awaken their spiritual stupor. And friends, in chapter 9, what happens? Uh, Hosea, again, I'm not going to uh, preach through uh, chapter 9, reaffirms that that punishment is coming. He says the religious party is over, verses 1 to 6. Do not rejoice, Israel. Do not be jubilant like the other nations, for you have been unfaithful to your God, uh, verse 1. They've also rejected the God's faithful prophets. Even when God sent prophets to speak to them, they didn't listen. A prophet is considered a fool and the inspired person a maniac. You won't even listen to me, he says. That's in verse 7, part B. And then he says at 10 to 17, the glory will depart. Any glory you had as a nation is going. Ephraim's glory will fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they read children, I will bereave them of everyone. Woe to them when I turn away from them. They will be wanderers among the nations. My God will reject them because they have not obeyed him. They'll be wanderers among the nations. Israel's situation. But then in chapter 10, and I'm only going to take you to one verse in chapter 10. He says this, in a call to repentance, a call to faith, a call to come back to him, using an agricultural metaphor. I learned this verse many years ago when I was in my 20s, Hosea 10, 12. It changed my life. Probably Hosea 10, 12. What's in Hosea 10, 12? You should be asking. Just memorize that verse, Hosea 10, 12. So righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love. And break up your unplowed or fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. They had forgotten God. They had served idols. They had broken his covenants. They were self-reliant. They were spiritually dead. And the expression unplowed or fallow ground, the way I learned it was the word fallow ground, uh, and no one knows what fallow means, but it means unplowed. Uh, But it describes them perfectly, right? It says the hard crust of their hearts meant that they were never moved to repentance. They just become hard to God. Rather than a soft heart that is responsive to God, become hard. In the past, it was plowed and produced fruit, but now, it's, it's, uh, as they say, fallow ground is a ground which was once tilled, but has gotten hard and now lies in waste. Picture that. You have a picture there. The land is not growing anything. It's not producing anything. There's no righteousness. There's no holiness. There's no productive fruit. There are no trees, no plants. It's nothing. It's untilled. And God is saying to Israel, your hearts are like that. And you've got to dig it up. You've got to have a look at your life. You've got to look at your heart. You've got to examine your heart to see what's going on. So I ask the question, what about you and what about me? Is your heart hard? Maybe due to struggles, maybe something has happened in your life, or maybe through COVID you've just lost your focus. 
Maybe you lost a job, or may, uh, maybe something else has happened. You've had a marriage breakup, or maybe you just hit middle age, and you think, man, I'm middle age. My life's almost over. I'm not quite sure what middle age is, so I won't throw a number in. Because the older you get, the later middle age goes. And all you 80-year-olds thinking, man, I'm not old, that other guy's 95. Still young. Maybe it's family stresses. Maybe you just drifted from God, period. And uh, you're producing fruit and all of a sudden less fruit and less fruit and less fruit. And you go, yeah, I'm just sort of going through the motions. Even coming here this morning, I'm just going through the motions. My wife dragged me, my husband dragged me, the kids dragged me. (laughs) Come on, let's go. And you're not open to the heart or the work of God in your heart. When I was in my 20s, I uh, read an article uh, put out by Keith Melody Green uh, by Charles Finney, a 19th century revivalist in the USA. They edited and paraphrased a, a, an article he put, uh, called, uh, put together called Breaking Up the Fallow Grounds. And these revivalists, they were pretty crazy, these guys, right? I mean, they're preaching everywhere. They're calling people to turn from sin and give up this and give up that and put God first and saw what's a great awakening in the United States. Millions of people coming to Christ and say, no, we will now live for Jesus. We'll throw away the cigarettes. We'll, throw, we'll stop being drunkards. We'll stop this. We'll stop that. Now, he's, theologically, he's not quite where I am, some of the background, and I, I, I notice he's, I think, uh, preached on us sinless perfection, that you could be so holy that you could be almost perfect here on earth. It's not quite correct. But there's something about the challenge of, and, he, and he's not reformed theologically as I am, it's more on the Arminian side, the free will side. Um, I'll forgive him for that. But he's, it's still the call to repentance and faith. And the article is an encouragement of self-examination. He says to break up the fellow ground of your heart. It's an outline for repentance. I'm just going to give you some uh, um, insights into some of the things that he's got in this article. And what I've got in the foyer, next to the offering, when you place your offering, if you do, or even if you don't, next to that, I have 50 copies of this article, this resource called Break Up the Fallow Ground by Charles Finney, edited by Keith Melody Green. And for those of you uh, who used to, anyone used to read and listen to uh, Keith Green's material in the past? Yeah, few of us. 40 years since he died, just this past week, I think. Killed in a plane crash in his late 20s with a couple of children. He had a significant impact on challenging people, young people, young adults, to give their lives fully to God. And uh, so I've got copies of it. And what I did when I first picked that up, the aim was that you sit away with the Bible and the Word of God and and a pad and and a pen and to read through it and to examine every aspect of your life. Or at least the 20, he has 26 areas or, that to consider. And then just to note down, if you'd sinned in some area, or maybe you're, you're failing in that area, and just to note it and to repent of it, and to be restored to God, and then to move forward. And uh, maybe you, know, you need to spend a couple of hours with God, and with this as a tool just to help you think through that. And, uh, and he says, self-examination, looking at my time here, uh, consists of looking at your life, considering your motives and actions, calling up your past, seeing its true character, to look over your past history, take up individual sins, confess them to God. Don't, don't just sort of, oh yeah, I sinned all of those ways, thank you Jesus, I have forgiveness. 
take time to, to look at your heart and look at your life and see how God could change you. And um, here's a number of areas like, uh, I won't outline all of these, ingratitude, uh, lack of love for God. It says, think how grieved and alarmed you'd be if you suddenly realised a great lack of affection for you and your wife, your husband or your children. If you saw that someone else had captured their hearts, thoughts and time. Perhaps in such a case, you would almost die with a just and holy jealousy. Now, God calls himself a jealous God. Have you not given your heart to other loves and infinitely offended him? That's just one area. The neglect of the Bible, unbelief, lack of prayer, neglect of fellowship. When you have allowed yourself to make small and foolish excuses that have prevented you from attending meetings. When you've neglected and poured contempt upon the gathering of saints merely because you didn't like church. Well, I mean, you're here, so this is positive. But I wonder sometimes how many people in this post-COVID age, friends, if there's a word to this post-COVID age, the habits that have developed uh, being at the beach rather than the gathering of God's people in worship to hear God's word, to acknowledge God's goodness, to rely upon, upon him. The exit from churches and gatherings during this time. The manner in which you have performed spiritual duties. Is your attitude right? The lack of love for souls. It says, look around at all your friends and relatives. And I, as I said to you, these guys are pretty tough on this stuff. Think about how little compassion you have felt for them. You've stood by and seen them go straight to hell. And it seems as though you didn't even care. How many days have there been when you have failed to make their wretched condition the subject of even one single fervent prayer or to prove any real desire for their salvation? Lack of care for the poor and lost in foreign lands, or neglect of family duties, lack of watchfulness over your witness, neglect to watch over your brethren. He says, how often have you broken your covenant that you would watch over your brothers and sisters? How little do you know or care about the state of their souls? And yet you're under solemn duty to watch over them. What have you done to get to know them better? How many times have you seen them falling into sin and you let them go? And you pretend to love them. Would you watch your wife or child go into disgrace or falling into a fire and hold your peace? See, he's challenging us to say, no, no, we are family. We have to interact. We have to seek to know and to care for one another. And he goes on and on and on. Love of things and possessions and vanity. I don't know about the Western church. It says, how many times have you spent more time decorating your body to go to church than you have in preparing your heart and mind for the worship of God. You have cared, cared more about how you appeared outwardly to men than how your soul appeared in the sight of God. Envy. Look at the case in which you were jealous of those who were in a higher position than you, and so on. Bitterness, slander, levity, lying, cheating, hypocrisy, robbing God, bad temper, hindering others from being useful. And then he says, I found as I was sitting down to write my sins, and this is Keith Green, that there were whole categories of sins that are common today that would never have even been spoken of uh, to the church in Finney's day. Some of these include fornication and sexual sins, the whole area of false peace induced by drugs and occult involvement, including astrology, witchcraft, meditation, yoga, and the whole gamut of Eastern religions and philosophies. He says, take time to think, to pray, that if your heart, heart is even a little bit hard, that God will till it, that God will break it, 
So it doesn't look like fallow ground any longer that God would produce great fruit out of it. Friends, don't forget God, as Israelites did. Break up the fallow ground. Center on Christ and his saving work in the midst of all of that. Our sins have been forgiven by Christ and they will be forgiven as we confess to him. Live for God's glory. Let his spirit transform you. I will leave you these verses out of 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Come to God honestly before him. And my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And it is that atoning sacrifice we're now going to remember as we celebrate, celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Amen.